starting the uh, mixtape today. And outside of uh, God's sovereign providence, uh, nothing more has gone into these psalms but uh, choosing our favorite ones. And so uh, I've chosen Psalm 73 because it is, uh, it is my favorite psalm. And just by accident, actually, Psalm 73 is the beginning of book three. It is the first psalm in the third book of the anthology or uh, book of the book of Psalms. And it is written by Asaph. The first 11 psalms in book three are written by uh, Asaph, who for all intents and purposes, was David's worship leader. Uh, that, he, that, is, that is what uh, we would have called him nowadays and on into uh, Solomon's reign as well. But he was a master uh, songwriter and poet uh, in this psalm as, as well as the others that are written by him. So Psalm 73 is where we are going to be, and it is uh, 28 verses long. And so because it's lengthy, I'm just going to have us uh, read actually the beginning of the sections of uh, this psalm. So we will read verse 1, verse 13, and verse 18. And those will be, that will be the reading. So I, I will read those along uh, with you. And then we'll walk through the psalm together and, and read, read the whole book as we go along. So Psalm 73.1, 73.13, and 73.18. Let's begin with verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Alright, and then let's look to verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And in the beginning of that third section, verse 18, Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. God, be kind to your people today by teaching us your word. Uphold us with your counsel. Guide us with your right hand. We praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen. No one raised their hand, but have, has anyone here ever had a crisis of faith? Or what you would say was a crisis of faith. A moment when you questioned if you believed or if what you believe about God is, is true. Is what I believe about God's Word really true? Have you ever doubted God's goodness? Or if you didn't doubt God's goodness, you doubted that God was good to you. Maybe you knew He was good in general, but you wondered if He, if he was good to you. And I think that anybody who has ever faced this, as a matter of fact, I said don't raise your hand, but I could tell by the way I was getting some nods that if we would raise our hands, it would probably be a lot of us here 
who have, have faced this kind of situation, and, and those of you that have faced this crisis of faith, as I, as I call it, would have to admit that during that crisis, your, your perspective on everything was skewed by uh, your pain and confusion. You saw everything through that lens, right? Uh, everything that, all those questions that you had in your mind, everything was seen through that. And because of that, one of the, one of the great needs that we have in such situations is a change in perspective. It's for us to see things without that blurring, if you will. Uh, what, what we need to see, and, and in my particular crisis, what I needed to see were uh, things as they truly were. Not things as they were skewed by that confusion and doubt and pain, but things as they really were. And it didn't arise from within me, and it doesn't rise from within us. Uh, what we need is something outside of ourselves to give us a new perspective, somebody to wipe the lens clean, if you will, to give us a, a new perspective and to see things as they are. And this is actually the poetic journey that Asaph goes on in Psalm 73, the psalm for our consideration this morning. There are three strophes, but that is such an odd word. I googled it. That is how you pronounce it, uh, or at least that's the way Google pronounced it. Um, but because I'm not comfortable with that word, we're going to call them sections. So there are three sections to Psalm 73. And every one of those sections are uh, headed by the word truly. We, we read those, truly God is good to Israel. And then verse 13, all in vain I have kept my heart clean. That's not translated in the ESV. Truly is translated as all in verse 13. But it is the word is actually the same word that is used in verse 1 and 18, and actually in the King James Version, it does uh, translate it verily. Um, so the, and then verse 18, uh, it, it, it says there, truly you set them in slippery places. And so those are the three headings, each marked by the word truly. And, uh, and, that, and those are the sections, verses 1 through 12, verse 13 through 17, and then 18 through 28. And because it's broke up like that, it made it easy for me to have a three-point outline just to follow the way that, uh, that the psalm is, is broken up. And I think it, that would be the best way even to maintain the integrity of the text is to follow the sections that Asaph has brought, uh, broke this poem up in. And so we'll do that. So verse 1 through 12, we're going to see the crisis of Asaph's faith. And then verse 13 through 17, we're going to begin to see a turning point, and then we'll see the climax of that turning point in verse 17. And then finally, in verses 18 through 28, we're going to see the resolution of that crisis of faith. So verses 1 through 12, in uh, verse 1, it begins with a contrast. Asaph says, truly God is is good to Israel, 
And then those who are truly Israel are those who are pure in heart. But in verse 2, he, he contrasts himself. He says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. His feet were near slipping. And what caused this stumbling? We see that it is the psalmist focused on the prosperity of the wicked. And this is actually what produced, this inappropriate focus is what produced this crisis of faith. He's unable to reconcile his opening statement in verse 1, God is good to Israel with God not punishing those who are impure in heart and deed. And not only do they seem to go unpunished as Asaph is making his assessment, they actually go on blessed and prosperous. And this created a, a crisis of, of faith for Asaph. The following verses in this section of the psalm then go on to describe the wicked, the way they live, and then to the psalmist's dismay, the way they prosper. Verse 4 and 5, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Asaph says the wicked seem to be healthy and well-fed. They hardly suffer trouble at all. All the way to death. The rest of mankind suffers trouble. But the, the wicked do not. 6 through 8, their pride is, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence cover, covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. He's describing the wicked, their disposition here. And he says that they are proud, violent, intemperate, malicious, threatening, and oppressive. He he uses some Im imagery there that they wear their pride and their arrogance like a necklace, right? And, and, that's, and I think we can understand that imagery. I remember uh, not long ago, Madison bought Miranda a necklace, and it had the birthstone of all three of our children. And it was so significant, you know what I mean? Because it, it, wearing that represented pride in her children. It was such a beautiful gift. Good job, Madison. But, uh, but it, I mean, it's just, you know, so that she, wore, she wears it, you know, because she's proud of her children. But these wicked folks, they're wearing something that they ought not to be proud of, like a, a necklace. They are demonstrating their own, their own arrogance. So it's not that they're arrogant and then they go their own way and be like, man, I wish I hadn't have said that or I wish I wouldn't act like that. But they wear it proudly. They're proud of their pride, so to speak. 9 through 11, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues stretched to the earth. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And here it seems like the psalmist almost wants to provoke the anger of God. God Look at these people. They're not just wicked, but they're speaking against you. He's hoping that maybe God would act against them and, and resolve some of that tension that he's feeling about their prosperity. They're speaking against God. They set their mouths against God's creation in the heavens, and they proudly speak their blasphemies throughout the earth. 
And then they act as if God is unaware of their evil words and deeds. How can God know? God doesn't know what we're saying because he doesn't do anything about it. And so Asaph is like, look, if you do something about it, then they would, they would know that you care. And then verse 10 says, does something interesting because uh, the, there is a variance in the text. The Hebrew rendering of the verse could be waters of a full cup are drained by them. So the psalmist could be speaking of, of a certain ruler who goes about speaking lies and blasphemies, but has such a smooth tongue that he is able to sway the masses back to his side. And so these people should see their, the arrogance of this ruler and be repulsed by his pride, but instead he has a silver tongue and he's able to, to bring the sway the masses back to, back to him. And that's the way that it's translated in the ESV. Or, as it probably appears in the Hebrew, he could be referencing the wicked people, just their intemperate regard for resources. Waters of a full cup are drained by them. Lord, you give them this full cup, and they just wring it out. They don't even, they don't even steward it well, and they go along unpunished. But either way, both translations still support the theme of this section of the text, and that is the wicked just seem to skate by through life unscathed by the difficulties that everybody else faces. And then the end of this section, verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked. He just emphasizes, I've been describing the wicked always at ease. They increase in wicked or in riches. The psalmist ends this section of the poem, poem emphasizing that he is describing how the wicked act and then how they prosper. Behold, he says, or look at this. The wicked act like this, and it seems they hardly have any troubles. And then they always have more than enough wealth. This is perplexing, extremely perplexing to the psalmist. And it causes a crisis of faith. But in verses 13 through 17, we begin to see a turning point. He doesn't remain in the crisis. The perplexity of what he is experiencing, what he is seeing, it doesn't completely blind him to the ultimate truth and completely and ultimate being important statements. He is temporarily blinded or partially blinded to the truth, but he is, but he is not completely blinded to the ultimate truth. And in verse 17, we see the turning point in all this, but we need to get to verse 17 uh, so that uh, uh, so that we can see uh, so that we can see that turning point. But the psalm, before we get there, the psalmist he turns inward, and he wonders to himself if all of his righteous actions are completely in vain. I also think that as we read through these verses, that we can note there is some change in perspective as the psalmist moves from looking at the wicked and speaking only of the wicked. And then begins to, to speak of himself. But that change in perspective does not note the right perspective. He doesn't take the right perspective. Verse 13 and 14 then. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
So the psalmist bemoans his situation because he feels as if his commitment to righteous living is completely in vain. The wicked, on the other hand, are com committed to unrighteousness and are prosperous and healthy, while Asaph experiences the difficulties of life and, note, and the rebuke of God for his slightest sin. So what Asaph is doing is he is desiring a reward for his righteousness like the wicked are apparently receiving for their wrongdoing. Lord, I should be getting a reward for my righteous actions, but instead it seems like the wicked are being rewarded the way I should be rewarded, but for their wrongdoing. And then verse 15, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He says that if he had spoken and acted like the proud and the wicked, it would have actually been a sin against God's people. God would not have tolerated it from Asaph. It could be a reference to the way the ESV renders verse 10, because the wicked ruler makes wicked declarations without giving thought to the consequences it may bring to his subjects. Indeed, the proud blasphemies of the, of the wicked ruler, uh, after that, his people find no fault in his tyrannical leadership or his evil declarations. But there's something else that I think is important here, and, and that is that there is another perspective brought to light. We catch a brief glimpse of another perspective, and that is Asaph is considering the people of God. If I would have spoken like this, I would have betrayed your people, God. Up to this point, the psalmist is lamenting the prosperity of the wicked. But there seems to be a selfishness in it. So it's not just that he's lamenting the prosperity of the wicked because they are wicked, but he is lamenting the prosperity of the wicked because they prosper. There's a, a selfishness. They are prospering, and, and I don't feel like I am. The wicked do wickedly, and they don't suffer. But I do righteously, and I do suffer. But there is a genuinely outward perspective, but just a glimpse again, because verse 16, we see the overwhelming weight of this perplexing situation. He says, Asaph says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I'm trying to reconcile all these things in my mind and I just can't. Try as he might, it is a futile effort that only left him feeling mentally and physically exhausted. This is a wearisome task. But this exercise in futility, this exhausting and burdensome task, actually leads Asaph to make a life-changing decision that we see in verse 17. When I thought how to understand this, verse 16, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And this is the turning point that marks this section. Indeed, this is the turning point that marks the whole psalm. I think that the word until could even be considered the operative word in this poem. Because it's here that this crisis of faith begins to find its resolution. Here, the appropriate perspective will be taken. Here, things begin to make sense. 
Asaph says, up to this point, I was appalled at the, at the seeming injustice of God and the prosperity of the wicked. I was wearied and burdened trying to figure it all out. I was offended and near falling away at the, at the way things seemed until I went to the sanctuary. Then things begin to make sense. How did they begin to make sense? I've hinted at it several times already. It's that Asaph was given a new perspective. And it's the right perspective. It's not the perspective of seeing things through the lens of his own pain and suffering or seeing things through the lens of himself or seeing things through the lens even of the people of God. But he saw things through the eternal perspective. He saw things through God's perspective. He understood their end. He discerned it. He worked it out in his mind. And then this perplexing situation began to make sense. He understood their end. Calvin says this is not a reference to their death. For the psalmist would have surely understood that the wicked ultimately do die. He is not bemoaning that they live on. He is bemoaning that while they live, they are prosperous. So this is a reference then to their impending judgment before God. Asaph says, I understood that they will stand before God in judgment. He sees then that their prosperity or their apparent prosperity, it's only fleeting and perishing that they just have it for a moment. But the good God that he praised at the very beginning of the psalm in that first verse, he will ultimately do what is right on the last day at the very least. He understands their end. He has a new perspective. And he gains it at the sanctuary of God. And this phrase is not, uh, it's not insignificant. The sanctuary of God would have been understood as God's special dwelling place. This is where man meets with God. This is where God lives, the sanctuary of God. He receives this perspective change then in the presence of God, in God's special dwelling place. And then we'll see what follows and, and the drastic difference that is made in his life when he takes on this perspective after he goes to the sanctuary of God. He leaves the sanctuary and he begins to see, the, see things rather through the lens of God's presence. He sees things through the lens of God's praise. He sees things through the lens of God's people. And now he is discerning things rightly. What a difference is made when God's people even glimpse to see things as God sees them. In verses 18 through 28, we see the resolution. He has the right perspective now. And I want us to note the drastic difference that it makes in the verses that follow. As a matter of fact, if you go back and, and read the entire psalm, it almost seems like the psalm takes a different theme. Like it starts one way and goes in the total opposite direction. Or that it's written by a different author. That one guy started it and another guy completed it. And I, I guess in, in a, some senses that that is true. Because Asaph is a new man now. He has a new message now. His, his perspective has changed. And he sees the wicked in a new light. 
And he sees himself in a new light. And when this happens, his faith in God that was just in crisis is now affirmed and renewed. Verse 18 through 20. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How, are they, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept, utterly, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Now he's seeing things correctly. He sees the wicked in a new light. God will not allow them to go unpunished. In fact, their feet are really the ones that are in slippery places. Remember, he says, my feet had almost slipped. But now he's saying, no, it's the wicked folks whose feet are in slippery places. And unlike Asaph, Asaph, his feet almost slipped. The wicked, they will ultimately slip and fall away. The wicked will be destroyed in a moment. And terrors will sweep them away because they are unprotected by God. As a matter of fact, they are not only unprotected by God, as Asaph says, but they are under the frown of God. He will arouse, he will awake and despise them as phantoms. They will experience his wrath when it is awakened against him. Verse 21 and 22 when my soul was embittered, I was, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. So the psalmist also shows us that he has a new perspective on himself. He goes to the sanctuary of God and encounters God's special presence. And it changes the way he understands himself. Up to this point, we get the sense that Asaph thinks he should be getting what the wicked are getting. That's, that's the root of his problem, right? I'm seeing the prosperity of the wicked and they're getting blessed. I'm over here living righteous and I'm not getting blessed. It should be the, the other way around. That's what he said up to this point. But now he realizes that this was coming from a place of resentment. It was coming from a, a place of, of bitterness against the wicked, but not only against the wicked, but also against God. God, why are you giving them what you should be giving me? That's what he was saying up to that point. But now he is ashamed of making such a complaint against God. And he likens himself to a brutish beast, ignorant. I was viewing things from, from the temporary perspective. It was, it was like I was an animal that would just be born and would live and go back to the dust. It was, it was like I was a beast when I was considering things this way. And in verse 23 and 24, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. We see the grace of God appearing in this psalm. And it's beginning to be understood by the psalmist. Remember, he just said he was brutish and ignorant. But the Lord did not forsake him. Still the Lord held him up and guided him with his counsel. He didn't slip and fall away because the Lord had held him up. Asaph realizes that this being held up by God and being guided by the counsel of God is not just a temporary thing in, in life that would make his life uh, better, but it is 
an eternal thing that God will receive him into glory on the last day. So Asaph is saying, you will hold me up and guide me with your truth. But then at the end, you will receive me into your glory in the last day. And this is in direct contrast to what he just said about the wicked and their end and how they would be swept away by terrors and that they would face the wrath of God. And then also what he would say about the wicked in verse 27, those who are far from you perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. So this perspective change has caused Asaph to see the goodness of God toward him and the justice of God toward the wicked. And that reminds him that God's grace has been with him all the way through this crisis of faith, even when he was making his foolish accusations against God. In verse 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So this change in perspective also gives Asaph an appropriate understanding of what he has and what the wicked do not have. That one main thing. The wicked may have all these riches, but what Asaph has instead of the wicked is actually everything, and that is God. They have all of this prosperity. The wicked appear to have all this prosperity. But they are really the ones who are poor. Because Asaph, even though he may have envied their stuff, he has now encountered God in God's special dwelling place. And he realizes that actually he has everything. Even when his health and strength are gone. And the wicked still have their health and strength. Asaph says, my inheritance is God. He is the strength of my heart. Even if my heart fails and the wicked have healthy hearts, God is the strength of my heart and He is my inheritance or my portion forever. And when Asaph remembers that he has God, everything else pales in comparison. And then finally, verses 27 through 28, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. It is good for me, but it is good for me to be near God. He glances back to the wicked and remembers they are far from God in this life. And God will bring them to an ultimate end. And he then sees himself in contrast to the wicked. Remember, he began, truly, God, you are good, but as for me. But now he is saying, no, God, you are good. The wicked will be punished. But as for me, you are good to me. And you will be good to me for eternity. He sees himself in contrast to the wicked, as near to God and protected by God. And I, and I do want us to note that this brings about a change in Asaph's actions as well. This is not just a perspective change that now he feels better about the way things are, but it, it produces an action. There is application to Asaph's perspective change. 
And he says, I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your work. So now instead of complaining because he cannot see the goodness of God, because it's skewed by the apparent prosperity of the wicked, the wicked, Asaph says, I will declare the goodness of God. So I'm not going to complain about what I'm not getting or what I think I should get, but I'm going to talk about how good God is. What a change takes place as we move through this psalm. Asaph goes from a crisis where all he can do is wonder if God is truly good and truly just. He's envious and bitter at the beginning. He questions his own faith in God and God's, own, and God's goodness. He's discouraged and completely exhausted. He's complaining against God. And now he's ready to spread the good news of all the good works of God. And what brings about this change in perspective and this change in action? We've said it all along. It is an encounter with God's special presence in the sanctuary of God. I want us to come back through for a few moments and just take a, a little closer look at the sections that make up this, this psalm to, say what it, to see what it's saying to us particularly. The first thing that I want us to note is, is the, the emphasis or the progression of pronouns in this text. In that first section, verses 1 through 12, we see that there is an intense focus on they. Verse 4, they have no pangs. Verse 5, they are not in trouble. They are not stricken. Verse 6, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them. Verse 7, their eyes swell. Their hearts overflow. Verse 8, they scoff. They threaten. Verse 9, they set their mouths against heaven. Their tongue struts. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? Verse 12, they increase in riches. But then in the second section of the poem, there is an intense focus on the word I. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. I have been stricken. If I had said I will speak, I would have betrayed. When I thought, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then the third movement of the psalm has a focus on you or on God. Verse 18, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall. Verse 20, when you rouse yourself, you despise them. 22, I was like a beast toward you. 23, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. 24, you guide me, your counsel. You will receive me. 25, whom have I but you? There is none that I desire besides you. Verse 26, God, or you are the strength of my heart. Verse 27, those far from you shall perish. You put an end to unfaithful to you. Verse 28, good to be near God, or God, it's good to be near you. God, you are my refuge. I will tell of your works. This progression of the pronouns in the three sections of the psalm speak intimately, I think, of the change of perspective the psalmist has amid the crisis. He goes from focusing on the wicked to focusing on himself. And then after his encounter with God, his focus is immediately and intensely on God. 
But notice, after verse 17, the psalmist doesn't speak, or rather cease to speak of himself, or cease to speak of the wicked. As a matter of fact, he does it after 17. He still continues to speak of himself, and he still continues to speak of the wicked. But the difference is the psalmist's perspective. Prior to 17, he only sees the wicked in light of himself and his own selfishness and envy. But after 17, he sees the wicked and himself as they each relate to God. And this makes all the difference. Beloved, this is, this is speaking plainly to us that when we are faced with those crises, crises that leave us wondering if God is good, when we see all of the wickedness and injustice at every turn, or we wonder if God is good to us because we feel like the evil and wrongdoing is directed toward us and God is doing nothing about it. That is when we need to see things not as they relate to us and not as they relate to others, but as they relate to God. We need our perspective changed. And where does such a change in perspective come from? It comes from the same place it came from in Asaph's situation, and that is the sanctuary of God. Now, in Asaph's day, the sanctuary of God would have been the, the tabernacle. It may have changed if he continued under Solomon. But the tabernacle most likely by this time located in Jerusalem. So there was a pilgrimage that needed to be taken place, especially for those that lived outside of Jerusalem, but we don't need to make such a pilgrimage to a, a central location when we are faced with a crisis of faith. So where do, where do we encounter the sanctuary of God in our time then? Well, we need to know what the sanctuary of God was then. As a matter of fact, I preached a whole sermon on it on December 12th, but I know that you remembered every single part of it. The sanctuary of God would have been a reference to God's special dwelling place. So taking that into account, when this psalm is telling us to go to the sanctuary of God, it is telling us at least two things. And that is when you are faced with a crisis of faith, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Jesus is the special dwelling place of God with man. He is God with us. As a matter of fact, that was the climax of the sermon. He is, I'm sure you remember that too. He is God incarnate. And we have immediate access to the Holy of Holies through the mediating work of Jesus, our Messiah. So when we feel that temptation to doubt, or we feel like our feet are slipping because of all of the evil all around us, or the evil towards us, we need to run to Jesus and cast our cares on Him. And we can all admit that to fail to do so turns to bitterness. It turns to foolish accusation against God, doesn't it? But to succeed in running to Jesus will mean life and peace and joy and happiness. Note that I did not say it will mean prosperity. And maybe not even justice. But it will, it will leave us content in the situation that we are in, because we will have gained the right perspective and we will see things appropriately. There's something else that looking to Jesus will do for us 
and that it will cause us to remember his suffering. It's hard to, it's hard to focus on Jesus without being reminded of his suffering, isn't it? We are mind, reminded of his suffering. We, as Hebrews 11 tells us, are spurred on to faith. For none of us has suffered the anguish that our master has suffered. It will also remind us that he has suffered on our account and on the account of our sin. The just one has suffered for the unjust. Really, when we start breaking up categories into those wicked folks, we tend to forget that we are brutish and we are ignorant and we have a tendency to wickedness ourselves. And this will humble us. And we, like Asaph, will be pricked in our hearts and we will see how brutish and ignorant we can be. And it will cause us to approach God differently. And it will cause us to approach the wrongdoer differently. We'll not, we'll not rail against God and be like, God, how can you be so unjust? For we know He has only been merciful to us because if we had received justice, we would be doomed. We will not mistreat evildoers, but will seek to tell them of all the wondrous works of God. So the unrepentant may repent of his sin and know the goodness of God and the mercy of our great Savior. I also want to speak to the unbeliever that may be here today in this moment and tell you that your crisis of faith is really that you have placed your faith in all the wrong things. Believers, we tend to do this as well. You have placed your faith in things like success and money only to realize that those things left you emptier than when you began to pursue those things. You placed your faith in people. And they did what people do. They let you down. You have attempted to put your faith in yourself like the world has told you to do. And that has only left you to recognize that you fail to live up to your own standards. Much less God's standards, right? We make a joke all the time around this time of the year about New Year's resolutions. We're constantly telling ourselves, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better. We can't even live up to our own standards. Much less God's standards. And this has left you feeling embittered. Angry, anxious, alone. You may even be angry at God. But I want to lovingly say to you, my unbelieving friend, that God is not to blame. Sin is. And not only sin in general, but your sin. The sin that you have carried since birth that has been handed down to you from Adam since the fall. But just as the remedy for believers is to look to Jesus in their crisis of faith, so the remedy is for you to look to Jesus in your crisis of faith. You've tried everything else. Look to Jesus. Place your faith in Jesus. Christ is the only answer because He is the only one that bore God's wrath due against you in Himself. Why else would you look anywhere else? My unbelieving friend, Christ is your only hope. 
And I am pleading with you today, if you're here or you're hearing me on Facebook Live, please turn to Jesus. Please repent of your sin and place your trust in Christ alone. And I can assure you that if you do this, He will save you. And He'll give you a new perspective. And you can see things appropriately. We also know that the sanctuary of God takes on a new meaning after the ascension of Jesus. In a very real way, in a very real way, the assembly of believers, indeed the gathering of the members of the local congregation, is the new sanctuary of God as we anticipate the new Jerusalem. A new perspective... Uh, Rather, it is, it is where Christ is in the midst of his people as he promised. And we gain a new perspective because we see things in the light of the gathered believers, the new sanctuary of God. And we can say truly God is good to those whose hearts have been made pure by faith. Think of it this way. We say truly God is good to those whose hearts have been made pure by faith. There's Dale, whose father unexpectedly passed away with COVID recently, and yet he's still pastoring and still counseling others through their difficulties. There is Melissa, who pressed beyond her own struggles to minister to my son and daughter-in-law a couple of Sundays ago. There's Brenda, who recently moved from the other side of the country, only for her husband to be hospitalized for an unknown amount of time. Yet Brenda very soon will obey the Lord in baptism. There is Brian who had a seizure so severe he couldn't drive for a month. But he's leading and praying and serving. And all around are a number of people before me who, who stepped up and drove him 25 miles to work every day so he could continue to provide for his family. I look down the rows of seats and, and see folks who have been abused and abandoned. Former homosexuals, former drug addicts, all with their eyes lifted heavenward as they sing the Word of God with passion and gusto. I see marriages restored from the brink of divorce. I see lives put back together that have been torn apart by sin. Testimonies of God's saving and keeping grace from those who have been steered away from a lifetime of heartache and a lifetime of sin because God saved them at an early age and the list can go on. All these folks, the Lord has continually been with, as the psalmist says. He has upheld them with His right hand and has guided them with His counsel and will afterward receive all of us into glory. Truly, it is good for me to be near to God in the new sanctuary of God. For it motivates me to keep the Lord as my refuge and to tell of all His works. What a change of perspective. What a new outlook comes when we run to the new sanctuary of God. I don't want to oversimpl oversimplify an application here, but I think that the passage tells the modern reader to go to church. Listen, I know there's some confusion nowadays. And, and this may make some of you mad. And I don't mean to make you mad not knowing you that long. I do love you. But online and live feeds are for the exceptions. 
These useful tools are not for folks who are able together, but find it more convenient to stay in their pajamas on the Lord's day. We are told in Hebrews 10.25 not to neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. So there goes that argument, well, most folks are doing it. But to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Colossians 3.16 tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And beloved, it is impossible to admonish and teach one another through singing the word, praying the word, speaking the word, and seeing the word in the sacraments if we do not gather with God's people. We cannot expect to take on the godly perspective if we rarely or never gather with those who have the same perspective. I think this passage of Scripture tells us to train our hearts and minds to look to Jesus at the first sign of doubt. Right? That goes against our natural tendency, doesn't it? Or at least it does mine. Our natural inclination is to blame others or to justify ourselves in the light of others' sin, right? That's what Jesus said. Look at the rotten, wicked. When he sees God, he's like, okay, I was the brute. I was the ignorant one. But until he comes into the presence of God, he's pointing out the sins of everybody else. And the longer that we go down that path, when we are tempted to doubt, the more worldly and proud our outlook becomes and the more likely we are to blame God or to doubt His goodness. And I, and I know that, I, that this is a dirty word, but we must discipline ourselves to act contrary to that inclination. And I can assure you that God will give you grace and strength. I can also assure you that there is grace to take the first step. Let me just use myself for an example. I have noticed that often my doubts arise. As a matter of fact, really, I would say the source, the root cause of my crisis of faith was ungratefulness. So when I notice myself becoming envious and bitter, I begin to think of all the things... I have to thank God about. Why would I be angry? Look at everything God has blessed me with. I begin to think about the fact that I, although I may not have the wealth of the wicked, I have a warm place in the winter, right? I've got a cool place in the summer, and that's more than a lot of folks have. I have a loving family. I've got a good job. I've got a Fairly reliable way to get around town. And you get the picture. Philippians 4, 6 through 8, I'll read in a moment, has really been one of those go-to scriptures for me that have been very helpful to, to quote to myself and to remind myself when I feel those doubts arising and that despair slipping in and feel like my feet are almost slipping Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, right? Don't start thinking about the prosperity of the wicked. Think about the goodness of God. And that is unnatural to us, I have to admit. And it takes some doing. But what I am saying, I'm not saying that we've got to whip ourselves on the back. What I'm saying is that if you will... Hey, just say, well, Jamie said, read this passage of Scripture. So when those doubts and uh, fears start coming in, start reading this. I will promise you that God's grace will meet you there. As a matter of fact, it's God's grace that led you there in the first place. Right? We don't fall from grace. When we fall, and we fall, we fall into grace. Anywhere we fall, because grace is all around us. We are in Christ. Finally, act kind and loving to unbelievers. It is a a proven fact that the more you act loving towards a person, the more you love them, husbands. (laughs) That was just a side lesson. It had nothing to do with don't go away and say, Jamie said you're a wicked (laughs) instead of constantly complaining about how wicked people are and how much better they have it than you, look for ways to demonstrate the love of Jesus to them. Right? Attempt to befriend that grumpy co-worker that no one likes. As a matter of fact, they might be grumpy because they don't have any friends. And it's just a big cycle. And I think that it's the Christian duty to break through that grumpiness and love them like Jesus. I didn't, say it was, I didn't say that was easy either. God's grace will meet you there. Take some, take some food to that person who mistreated you when they're sick. Show some kindness. Act lovingly toward them. The more you enter their situation, the more you find the point of their struggle. And the more you may feel loving toward them. And here's what really loving them is. It's not bringing them food, but it's opening up the opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus to them. Because that's, listen, a social change, a situation change, a behavior change, that's, that, it might alleviate things for you and may even alleviate things for them. But when we are doing this with the per- eternal perspective, we realize that this is not the ultimate goal. The most loving thing we can do is call them to repentance. To tell them of the good works of God. And God has done nothing better than sending His Son to die for sinners. They need a heart change. And that will only come through preaching the gospel. That is the power of God to salvation to those who believe. So we declare with the psalmist the good works of God of God to the salvation of the wicked. God, you are gracious to us. So gracious.
Lord, we don't only see ourselves in Asaph, but we see ourselves in the wicked. We have been proud and worn it about like a necklace. We have treated people unjustly. And we admit that to you, Lord. But Lord, we have also approached you in an unholy manner, angry, complaining against you, because we were seeing things through our own selfish lens. We confess that to you. But Lord, we can all acknowledge that you have been good to us. As we sit here in this moment, in the sanctuary of God, we all can acknowledge together that you have been good to us. Better than we deserve. Lord, and so our, our focus is not on the prosperity of others, but it is on the goodness, on your goodness toward us. And the way that you have most deeply demonstrated your goodness to us is that you gave us your son. And so I pray, God, that when we doubt and despair, and instead of lingering and wallowing around in it, Lord, that we will run to you. That we will find our help and our hope and our faith and our trust in you. And then, Lord, that we will declare your good works to all of our friends and neighbors, to the wicked, to the unbelieving, to one another as we constantly gather. And we know it will be to your glory. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.